All right, you guys, if you will hang on tight. Seriously, I have a lot of content, but I'm going to move faster than Mario Andretti. So be ready to roll, okay? We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and we're going to start down in verse 16. The title is really actually somewhat important today. The title is Distressed. Distressed. And I hope you'll be kind of thinking about that as we make our way through this message. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, the word of God says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. And when he saw the city holy, he saw the city given holy to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. And then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him unto the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. Get us started today. This is from Mary Farewell. I was listening to my five-year-old son, Matthew, as he worked on his speak and spell computer. He was concentrating intensely, typing words for the computer to say back to him. Matthew punched in the word God, but to his surprise, the computer said, word not found. He tried again with the same reply. With great disgust, he stared at the computer and he told it in no uncertain terms, Jesus is not going to like this. <laughs> Melissa shared with us this morning, she was at a wedding and they were typing in the word God and it wasn't to be found, right? You guys, our culture is changing rapidly. And becoming an older person, I can sit around and be grouchy and long for the good old days. Or as we see from Paul here today, I can become distressed and with the power of the Holy Spirit, I can do something about it. What are you going to do when the Lord distresses your heart? Let me give you a little quick context this morning. So we're in the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you were to start up in the beginning, you're going to find Paul in a place called Thessalonica. So we were through there not too long ago on Wednesday nights, right? He speaks there in the Sabbath for three Sabbaths. He speaks in the synagogue. And when he's there, there's a few Jews that will join him, and there's a lot of Greeks, and there's some prominent women, the Scripture says. Why does he start in the synagogue? He goes to a town that's got, if we could say to some respect, church people and unchurched people, and he's going to the church people first, right? Where he's going is he knows if he can find the synagogue, there's people there who are searching for the Messiah. He's going to reveal to them the Messiah, and because of that, he's hoping to gain a little traction. That's why he starts there. Now, you'll see in many places, he doesn't stay there. He has to move on. But here, there's a few Jews, but what he finds in Thessalonica is there's a lot of God-fearing Greeks who want to know more about this Jesus. And so they begin to have a pretty good assembly. Now, there's quite a few Jews who don't join him and they can't stand him. And I love how the scripture basically words that they went and found a few rotten men and started a mob. 
There's always a few rotten men around to get things going, isn't there, right? And that's what they did. They went and got a few uh, angry men and started stirring up trouble for Paul and for Silas and for Timothy. And then they come out with an accusation. I want you to see the accusation this morning. Their accusation to these Christians was they are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And that caused a problem, didn't it, right? Who do we fear? Not necessarily trying to be political per se, but do we fear our governor? Do we fear our mayor? Do we fear our president? Or do we have a king and his name is Jesus? All right. I'm going to be honest with you. If we are proclaiming Jesus as king, that's going to cause some controversy for some political leaders, isn't it, right? It should. And just like it was for Paul, we should be speaking the same truth that our king is Jesus. Well, so the Christians, and it's interesting here, again, as we think about people in persecution, again, I shared this morning in Sunday school, within the last few weeks, there were 71 Christians killed in Minapar in India next to, to Myanmar. There were 66,000 of them displaced, Christian businesses, Christian homes, Christian churches being burned down. We heard a little bit about it up front, and they haven't talked about it much in the last few weeks, but still happening, right? Sometimes it's time to stay and to face persecution, but sometimes it's time to flee. And what we see here in Acts chapter 17 is this is one of the times that Paul will leave the persecution. He doesn't stay in it. He is actually carried away. We've always got to trust the Holy Spirit in these things, don't we, right? So Paul is taken out of this persecution, and he goes to the next town, and the town is Berea. And some of his friends back in Thessalonica are being harassed because they can't find Paul. So they find Jason, they find some other Christians, and they end up throwing them in jail, but they get out on bond. When you go to Berea, though, we find some pretty amazing people there. What were the Jews doing there when Paul preached? Do you guys know what they did? What were they famous for? Go ahead. What's somebody tell me? What are the Bereans famous for? They searched the what? The Scriptures. Paul started saying, oh, okay, here in Isaiah, it says this. I don't know if I trust that Paul guy. And they started digging in. Like we read today in Amos. Well, in Amos, it says this about the day of the Lord. Paul's talking about, let's check it out. You guys, just be really clear, whether it's Ray or Paul or me or Michael or Rick, any of us that are teaching or preaching or speaking, everything should be checked against the word of God. Amen. And that's what these Bereans were doing. And that's why we're so proud of them. And that's why that's the kind of people that we want to be. And when they check things against the word of God, what happened? They saw it was true. And many Jews there in Berea followed Christ. And again, more Greeks and again, more prominent women. Well, the Thessalonians hear about this. And what do they do? Again, they're in Berea. He just left Thessalonica. So what do they do? They decide to go over to that town and cause trouble, <laughs> right? We're going to try to find these, hunt these guys down. They chase them down into Berea, and Paul even leaves them there. He goes on to Athens. Now, he leaves Timothy and Silas in Berea, and they're going to face a little bit of persecution there, but their intent is to meet up with Paul, and that is where our passage begins today. So look with me there again in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas, for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of what? It was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, 
as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Look at verse um, 11 there. Excuse me, verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but what? Talking and about and listening to the latest ideas. Do you know any people like that? What's new? What's out there? That's what they were doing. So Paul's waiting for Timothy and Silas. He's there, uh, left Berea. He's in Athens. And here's what I want you to see this morning. Paul was distressed. He was moved because of the idols. Now, if you guys know anything about Hellenistic, about Greek culture, Greek culture was transforming the world, okay? And even today, a lot of things we have are still our architecture influenced by Greek culture, our arts influenced by Greek culture. I mean, it was just, in its heyday, Athens would have been the city on the planet. And it's starting to fall off a little bit here when Paul arrives. And when he comes and sees all this beautiful things that are around, he comes to a place that we are going to know as Areopagus. And Areopagus was a really fancy, you might hear it called Mars Hill. It was a beautiful uh, outcropping. And it was a place where a council would come and meet. Usually 400 to 500 men would come and they would make decisions for their community. That's quite a crowd, isn't it, right? We don't know if Paul actually is going to get to see all the crowd or if he's at the place. So when it says Areopagus, it could be referring to the actual meeting where the people are there, or it could be referring just to the place. But while he was waiting, he notices something. Do you remember what the scripture said he noticed? He noticed the idols. Right? Diane, let's walk through this just a little bit here this morning. You know what that is? That's a temple, and I kind of got in trouble because I didn't take my shoes off. <laughs> and there are idols in the temple. Go to the next one. Another temple with idols. Go to the next one. You know what those two things are? I saw a man praying to those figurines. And you go to the next one. And this uh, Sambalpur, this is the city center. What's in the center of this main part of the city? A temple, and what's it filled with? Idols. Go to the next one. There's the old elephant god in every single hotel. And again, I saw people praying and lighting candles to the elephant god. Go to the next one. This was the first time I went, and this is the very first moment that my heart was distressed, I think, like Paul's was here. Here were people going down the street, having a parade, praying and celebrating this like six-armed God. They were going to go release it out into the river, and they were worshiping this idol because they don't know Jesus. Does that bother you at all? I don't care. That's not where I live. That's not my country. Oh, I don't care. That's just how those people are. Yeah, well, they get what they pay for, right? 
Again, I'm hoping you'll listen to the Lord today. And this is what we're trying to work on as a church family, all right? We need to be more distressed for the lost than we are. That's not me talking. Everyone in here, we need the Lord to help us be more distressed for the lost. In my own life, I, especially as I get a little older, I'm like, well, that's the path you chose. I guess you get to have what you chose. But for the people I really love, do I feel that way? No, if one of my kids was on a train track, what am I going to do? Am I going to say, well, that's the path you chose? I'm going to do everything in my power to get them off that train track. Am I? Right? Again, I'm not telling you you have to have a burden for every single soul in the whole world, but you, the Lord has put you in your world. Amen? And your world may be at work. It may be your neighborhood. It may be your family that lives with you or comes and visits you. It may be for us later on in life, people who come visit us in the nursing home. That may be our world, but the Lord is speaking to all of us today that we need to be distressed. Diane, if there's any more pictures, you can go through those real quickly. Again, that's the temple of the monkey god. There's the priest of the temple of the monkey god. Go to the next one. There's the monkey god himself, about 75, 80 feet tall. Go ahead and go on. That's why I can go to the next quote. Change will not happen until we are distressed. And I'm not necessarily talking about changing others. Changing us will not happen until we start getting distressed, until we are moved, until we have a passion that people would find the power of God in their life. You guys and I, all of us, we need to rest in that thought a little bit, okay? I'm going to keep moving through this message, but that's the whole point. We've got to come to a place where sin and where sinners who are hurting, where it distresses us. When you see something that's uh, all of this, you know, the new identity movement, are you mocking people who are transgender? Are you mocking people who are gay? Are you seeing people that are far from God that need a savior? Are you distressed? Are you just making fun? As the culture changes, are you just laughing and mocking and ignoring? Lord, help us that we would have the burden. A simple way to put it. Next phrase. Do you care if people know God? Again, I'm asking you to take inventory today. If your answer is yes today, praise the Lord, go on. (laughs) I'm not trying to guilt trip you if you care. But if today you're sitting there and you're like, well, I really care more about what I'm going to have for dinner than whether my neighbor knows the Lord then we got some problems, amen? And each of us today, as believers, we're asking the Lord to invade our heart and our mind that we would be distressed. Not that we would live in anxiety or anything like that, but that we would really see people the way God sees people, and we would long for them to know the Lord the way that heaven came down and glory filled our soul, okay? That's where we need to be. When was the last time you prayed for someone specifically to be saved, for them to be reconciled. And again, I just want to share briefly this morning that I've seen God answering prayers on my white card list, and it's been awesome. 
to see how God is at work. Paul's passion, it moved him to action. So when Paul was distressed and when he moved, he switched gears and he goes to the marketplace. And in the marketplace at Athens, he's going to find a different group of people and he's going to have to approach them differently. Now he goes and finds the local discussion group. Where's the local discussion group in your world? And the teachers, it might be the teacher lounge. If you're an old man, in some places, you just go to McDonald's, amen? Drink coffee all morning, right? Where is the discussion group? Where is the community? For some of us, and I'm not a big fan of this, but it's just how things are nowadays, it may be online. That may be where the marketplace is, where that discussion group is. Paul goes to the people. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. And when he gets there, who does he find? He finds the Epicureans and the Stoics. It's not exactly Democrats and Republicans, so it's not really political. It's more philosophical, right? What are you today? Are you an Epicurean or are you a Stoic? So in old-fashioned terms, I used to would think that, well, the Stoics were all the straight-laced people and the Epicureans were the party-goers. Not exactly quite that, all right? Let me give you just a quick example a little bit. So the Stoics, what drove them, what drove their life, the purpose of their life, the way that they viewed the world was virtue. So what drove them was to try to be and to do good. And they did everything in light of what that was. Am I going to do this? Well, is it morally good? Is it going to make a difference? Is it virtuous? Do we have people like that today? Sure, we have a lot of people sitting in church views like that, don't we? That may not know Jesus, but are trying to be good people, right? That's kind of the frame of mind for a stoic person, is that my, my life is driven by the good that I can do. The Epicureans were a little bit different. What drove them was happiness. Do you know any people that really, that is their worldview, what drives them is happiness? Now, they're a little different. They're not hedonists. Like, that's how I always categorized them. I studied a little bit more and realized that wasn't the case. It wasn't like, let's go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That wasn't really Epicurean thinking. They were about a simple life. They didn't want a lot of stuff, but they wanted happiness, and they wanted friendship. Do you know some people that what really drives their life is just relationship and the pursuit of happiness? Yeah, we do, right? And that's who Paul is encountering here at the Areopagus, And he begins to tell them about the Lord that he loves. In our own arena, in our own area, we have Epicureans and Stoics, but they all need the message of the gospel. There are so many people whose ultimate goal is happiness. And again, not even excess, but they just want to be happy. And we have people that are law-abiding and moral and responsible, and that's what drives their life. And again, we may see them here, even where we sit. Lloyd John Ogilvie says this, The institutional church in America is filled with religious people who desperately need an experience of the living, holy, forgiving, gracious God. That's a quote, isn't it, right? Yes. And that's what Paul was trying to do. He's trying to share the message of Jesus and the resurrection. And you guys, that's what we're still doing. Where is your audience, right? It could be your neighbor, your workplace, uh, your social media community. It can be any of those places, but that's where we need to be living and breathing and sharing the gospel. And again, Paul here is going to have his chance, and here's his audience 
there at Mars Hill. Look down, if you would, at the next passage in verse 22. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Did he come right out and say, You bunch of heathen, you're going to hell? That's not how he started, did he? And sometimes we kind of feel that way, but we need to be careful about it. Now, John the Baptist found some effectiveness with that. <laughs> so we have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's interesting that he even compliments them as he begins his conversation. He says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worships, I even found an altar with this inscription. And what was the inscription? To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And I beg you again this morning, we've got to follow the Holy Spirit as we try to share the gospel. It's like raising your kids. Same parents, children, same genes, and yet some of them are so completely different in their personality, isn't it, right? And sometimes one of them that you're tough on, they need it and they get better, and the other one, if you're tough on it, just completely crushes them and they're useless, <laughs> right? Same thing was we're witnessing to people in our life. It won't be the same encounter with everybody that you come across. You've got to depend on the Lord as you reach out to these people. He notes their religiosity. And we are reminded today that even extremely religious people can still be lost. And he noted the counter, the culture that he was confronting. He notices the unknown God inscription, and that catches his eye. And this is where I need a lot of help. There's all these clues around us that we can use to share the gospel. Do you ever just kind of miss them and later on you're like, oh, what was I doing? Well, I had a really good opportunity on Friday that it kind of worked out in a good way. So we're sitting down at this table and I've got friends around the table and I know some of them, they don't believe in the Lord. And then Miss Linda comes in and if you know Miss Linda, like she's on fire for Jesus. I mean, nothing else in her life, she just wants to know God. And so when I'm sitting there, I'm thinking in my brain, this is again the, the overthinker in me, is like, okay, should I just, you know, stay with the weather and the sports teams? Or Miss Linda sitting right here, let's, should we just start talking about Jesus? And she said, well, I didn't get to hear about your trip to India. Okay, well, here we go. <laughs> you know me, right? right? If you're going to even mention the word, you've just lost a half an hour because i got to tell you everything, right? And so we start talking a little bit, and we're just talking about what, what Jesus is doing, how God is on the move. And I know that these other people on the side are like, Oh boy, who are these crazies over here? And then Linda says, oh, you're not gonna believe what's been in my devotions lately, that, that the more we encounter who God is, that then we can really serve and know him. But we really need to focus on who he is, not just on what he's done for us. And she starts bringing out her notes, like she's been doing devotions like daily, typing up all this stuff. And we're just, well, isn't that awesome how Jesus works in this way? And it felt so good to be confessing the name of Christ in front of my other coworkers right? Did I pick on each of them and tell them what I thought was wrong and how they? No, what I was doing was following the Holy Spirit, letting God work between two believers who love the Lord, and they, we were sharing our love for the Lord in the middle of some people that didn't know the Lord. Now, Paul, I'm going to quote from him this morning, it's not that hard, right? You guys, when you say the prayer at McDonald's or wherever you're out to eat, it's not that hard, right? If you find any light wherever you're, you're a neighbor, or you're walking on the street, if, it's a, if you're going into your workplace, you're going into Walmart, you find another believer, talk about Jesus out in the open, right? Teresa's all about it. 
So that's what we need to be. And that's what Paul was doing here. He was found an opportunity out in the marketplace and sharing again. And, and what God will do here just is amazing. Again, we have to make a connection. Sometimes we have to serve someone, but ask the Lord to help us in this area. All right, moving on quickly. Verse 24, the God who made the world, this is his message, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Again, from the idols. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives him, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. Okay, I could preach like a six-week series on that paragraph, so we're going to hold off on that, right? A couple just simple, quick things. Paul did not start with the birth of Jesus when he's talking to the people on Mars Hill. Where'd he start? Creation. You got to know your audience, right? Some people you encounter, if they've never heard about Jesus, you may have to go back to Adam and Eve first before you ever get to Jesus, okay? He knew who he was speaking to there. And then, Roger, this one's for you up there. Uh, the Lord determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. <laughs> God's sovereignty and human choice, right? Is the Lord in control? Yes, but notice what it says about the Lord here. What was the purpose of these things? Was it so that he could treat us like puppets and hurt us and harm us and do as he wished with us? No, he did these things so that people might reach out for him, that they would seek him, and that possibly they might find him. God wants a relationship with you. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think we heard that this morning, right? Look here again, right? The Lord's patience is good. The Lord's desires for people to know him. He's not some mean harbinger of death. He is actually wanting people to come to him. Let's go on down the next paragraph there. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Truth. Right? Did you hear that? Hey, you guys, I see that you're religious. I want to tell you some stories. Oh, that's good. That's good. And they're like, they're listening in pretty good. Well, this, is, this guy's kind of interesting. And I can start to see how there may be some parallels here. And then he says, uh, preacher's words, well, actually, the word of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after then, the judgment. Amen? Hmm. And I think he probably really had their attention until he says something at the end. What did he say? And God has proven all this by raising his son, the man he has appointed from the dead. And then do you guys know what happened after that? Hmm. Again, gospel message 
clear truth. God will judge the world through Jesus. Jesus, If you need proof, look at an empty tomb. Look at the power of God. Examine the truth of the resurrection. Know that God keeps his promises. Know that this Jesus will judge the world. We don't judge, but God will. Quick aside here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is so good. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means uh, grace sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, without discipline, communion, without confession, absolution, without personal confession. The truth needs to be told. Okay? That's where we need the Lord's help. I'm afraid, I, I, I've taught a conversation with, with a friend of our, our family just yesterday. And I, in my early years, I felt like my generation, they did a good job at telling the truth, but they were so legalistic that they missed the opportunity to really hear people's stories and reach out to them. So then my generation seemed like we went all the way the other way. And the church has been all about compassion and kindness and healing and seeking and getting to know God. But now we haven't held those firm boundaries of truth. And we got to come back to that center. So simple truths this morning, connect with your audience, start where they are, not where you want them to be. Tell them of Jesus, but tell them of repentance. Tell them of judgment and tell them of the resurrection. Be reminded of this truth. This is from Alistair McGrath. Christianity is not, it never has been about finding the right combination of words. It is about encountering the living and loving God. (laughs) Don't worry about the words. Trust the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, here's the problem. As soon as Paul says the word resurrection, look what they do down the very end here. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. If you tell people about the truth of the resurrection, you're going to get some different reactions too, aren't you, right? What was the first reaction? I think they're following along. They're like, man, this guy's really interesting. This is amazing. And then they said, and God raised this Jesus from the dead. And they were like, okay, this guy, he's a clown. Get him out of here. We're done. <laughs> he just lost all credibility. I'm going to tell you today, when you speak the truth of the resurrection, or as we saw in Sunday school, you speak the truth of Jesus Christ, that he's going to return, you're going to lose some of your audience. That's Okay. That's not up to me. It's not up to you either. Don't feel bad about that. As a matter of fact, expect it. Know that sometimes when you proclaim the truth about Jesus, some people around that table are going to laugh and they'll be like, those people are crazy. And that's what will happen. But there was another crowd there. What did they do? They said, we need a little more on the subject, right? Now, for some people, that could just be an excuse, couldn't it, right? Yeah, let's get him on out of here. We just need to hear a little more later, Paul. (laughs) But for some people, and hear me out this morning, some people truly are processing that conversation. There are some people at that table that are looking at Linda and they're looking at me and they're like, well, are these people really going to live up to this Jesus they love? And I better, with the Lord's help, do my best to love and serve. And even when I fail, I better be showing the Lord in my failure by repentance and change. Amen? And so there's going to be that. Some people are still wanting a little more information. But, there's one more group there too, right? Some will follow. Some will sneer. Some will need more information. And some will follow. Who was the Areopagite who got saved? He's in the scripture 
from the last 2,000 years, this guy made it in the book. <laughs> Dionysius, a member of this ruling council, heard the gospel, and his life was forever changed. Damaris, she heard the gospel. What's going to happen when we get to heaven? Damaris, come over here. Can you tell me what was it like when Paul was preaching that sermon? <laughs> Think about that. What an opportunity that we're going to have to meet these people because they responded to the truth. You guys, what we're going to see as well, and what we've seen in our body even this past year, as we present the truth, every now and then, somebody will receive the resurrection and their life will be forever changed. Again, we sow, we water, God gives the increased. Well, what names can we add to the end of our chapter? If you're writing your own Acts 17, who's it going to be at the bottom of the list that, and so-and-so accepted Christ and so-and-so receive the Lord. What prominent woman or what Greek man, what Gentile, what Jew, right? What can we do there? Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian Jew, has been called the voice of the underground church. In the 1940s, he was jailed and tortured by communist officials in his home country. And while imprisoned, he spoke boldly of the gospel to his atheistic captors. Listen to this. It's very good. About one experience in the 14 years he spent in prison, he wrote, the political officer asked me harshly, how long will you continue to keep your stupid religion? I said to him, I have seen innumerable atheists regretting on their deathbeds that they have been godless. They called on Christ. Can you imagine that a Christian could regret when death is near that he has been a Christian and call on Marx or Lenin to rescue him from his faith? The atheist began to laugh. That's a clever answer. I continued, when an engineer has built a bridge, the fact that a cat can pass over the bridge is no proof that the bridge is good. A train must pass over it to prove its strength. The fact that you can be an atheist when everything goes well does not prove the truth of atheism. It does not hold up in moments of great crisis. I used Lenin's books to prove to him that even after becoming prime minister of the Soviet Union, Lenin himself prayed when things went wrong. Amen. You guys, there's a place for reason, but it's still about encountering the person of Jesus. Simple truth this morning. People that we know need to know the God who has changed us. Will you pray and obediently move as God leads you to share with these people? And very simply this morning, I'm asking you, would you ask the Lord to make you distressed in a good way? Let's stand this morning. Thank you guys for your patience. I'm going to ask Miss Ida if she would to come, and we're going to sing a simple uh, song of prayer today. It's such a good song. It's Have Thine Own Way. If you want to turn there in your hymn books, you can even as well. It's 371. And let's just sing a couple verses of this song and let this be a moment of surrender again this morning. And as we sing this song, uh, offer your heart to the Lord to distress it for those around you that need Jesus. And of course, if you'd like to come pray this morning, you're welcome to do that.